All right, well, as we um, near the end of this series and this season together, I hope many of you are beginning to experience some life change, some actual life change, which really is our goal, transformation, to become better believers, as we've put it in the title. It might seem like too much to expect any real growth in just a few weeks, but I don't think so because I really do believe that when we get serious about doing our part, God is always faithful to do his part. Why? Because his number one goal for you and me actually is to make us better, to make us more like Jesus, his son. I do believe I can make that case from scripture, but rather than taking time to do so, let's start by asking the why question. Why would God want to make us better believers? Why would God want to develop Christ-like character in us? We could start by saying that God wants to change us because he loves us and he knows that we will be happier and better off without the sinful attitudes and behaviors that bring us down. And that's absolutely true. It's because of love. But there's a, dip, a deeper reason God wants to change you and me. To understand this, we need to mentally grasp what God is all about. God is about bringing glory to himself. This is the definition of God. This is what it means to be God. He is the creator of all things, and he is the, the rightful recipient of all glory. God is not some random concept or whoever you want him to be, but he's a real personal being and he created everything that exists because he wanted to create it for himself. He made it all because he finds enjoyment in that which he brings into existence. He made you because he wanted to make you. He made you to bring glory to himself. This is not a popular message today because it just doesn't sit well with most of us. But why doesn't it sit well? Why does it sound wrong to say that God created us to bring glory to himself? Well, certainly we know that it would be wrong for any of us to live for this purpose, right? We know that we should not see ourselves as the center of the universe. Indeed, when we seek our own glory, we supplant God and we sin against him. We are to live for God's glory, and when we live mostly for ourselves, instead, the Bible says we practice idolatry, robbing God of what is, what is rightfully His. We know deep down that it is wrong to be self-centered, but we should also understand the reason it is wrong. It is wrong to be self-centered because God is the center of all things, and He deserves to be the center of our lives. I think when we hear that God is all about bringing glory to himself or that he is the center, we don't like it because it wouldn't be right for us or any other human to live that way. But that's where we tell on ourselves. See, we tend to think of God in human terms. And so we don't like to think of God as all about himself. But even in this negative sentiment, we show that we think too highly of ourselves. 
we actually think we know what is right and wrong for God. Again, idolatry. So on a deeper level, the concept of who God actually is sounds wrong to our ears because every single one of us has been tainted by the same sin that left Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. As the devil put it, now you will have your eyes open to see things as if you are God. Problem is, we aren't. We just kind of think like him now, especially in terms of our place in the universe. In other words, the real reason we don't like it, that God wants all the glory, is that we want some of it for ourselves. One might even say that sin has made us like God in all the wrong ways. I'll let you ponder that one. If you're so inclined, the original sin has made us like God in all the wrong ways. Put that on a t-shirt. Back to the point, why does God want to change us? At least partly because he wants to be able to use us for his glory. And it's, it's only when we are changed that we become useful to him. Here again, most humans cringe. Well, maybe I don't want my purpose in life to be defined by how useful I am to God. See, that is a sinful, blasphemous thought. And it tells us how big we see ourselves in light of our small view of God. I'm sure we all have a long ways to go in our understanding of who God is and what He deserves. But I can tell you that when you really start to grasp that God is all about His own glory. You'll find freedom and joy, not meaningless and despair. When you realize how much you matter to God, that his plans for you are so huge that they could actually make a difference to him, that you can be used to expand his kingdom and actually increase his glory. To know that you can please God through what you do with your life. And when you understand that this is not some little God who sits on your shoulder or hangs like a good luck charm around your neck, but is the one who breathed out the stars, that's when your life really starts to matter. See, some people think life is all about the next high or being successful enough to buy the dream house or the boat. Or maybe doing some good thing, some, some great thing that nobody will remember for very long. But those who have experienced it know that, that living for God's glory and for His kingdom and for His purposes is infinitely better than any alternative. So there's the why. Why does God want to change you and make you a better believer, more like Christ? Answer, for his glory. He wants to make himself look better through you. And I'll circle back and remind you of the other reason I mentioned as well, that it's also because he loves you. In fact, those are always the best two answers in regard to why God does anything. His glory and his love. 
remember this, just in case there's ever a test, that the reason God does what he does can be boiled down to two things, his glory and his love. Now let's review our scripture passage for this series, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. And we're going to try something different this morning. Let's try reading it out loud together. I'm kind of nervous. I don't know if we can really, you think we can do this? It's on, it's on the screen or it's in your program in, in the, so that we're in the same translation. Right? There it is. Here we go. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Now I want to focus for a moment on those last two verses. Verses 8 and 9 where it says, For if these qualities are yours, and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. There can simply be no doubt that right now in this very room there are many believers who should take that personally. If these qualities are yours and increasing, you're not useless. If you lack these qualities, you're blind, short-sighted. Forgot what Jesus did for you. Maybe you know that you accepted Christ at some point in your life. Let's say you remember the experience. You know it was real. But have you forgotten that God has cleansed you from your old life purified you from the life you would have lived without him? Are you a Christian who has failed to develop these qualities? Have you not really seen much change in any of these areas since you surrendered to Christ, or have you reverted? If so, the Bible says you're what? Look back at the text. God's Word says that those who fail to develop these qualities are what? Blind or short-sighted. And if you think about it, verse 8 is worse, where it says that if you're a believer who hasn't developed these qualities, you are useless or unfruitful. Ouch. 
Pastor Peter dares to tell his church, some of you folks are basically useless at this point. These days, most churches would call for a meeting over this. They'd sit the pastor down, tell him he needs to be nicer. But why does Peter do it? He doesn't want to insult you or slap you on the wrist for no good reason. No, he's wanting you to wake up before it's too late. Maybe it's time to stop and take a hard look at what you have actually become or not become. The wake-up call is this. If you know God by faith in Christ, the Bible says you have the power to develop these virtues. You have the ability in Him to exhibit these Christ-like character traits that we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Moral excellence, self-control, perseverance, and today, godliness. In Christ, these virtues are not beyond you. Stop believing the lie that you are worthless to God when you could be useful. Stop believing you can't make a difference when you could be fruitful. Stop being blind and short-sighted and remember that God has purified you from your old self so that you can shine His light in a dark world. Peter says, if you have failed to develop these qualities, even though you have the power within you, then there must be a disconnect so profound that it's like blindness. You're walking around in the dark when there's a light switch within your reach and it's just waiting to be flipped on. Only God knows how many of you here today need to have this light bulb moment when you realize that you are missing out on God's best for your life. For some reason, you aren't acting on the power you've been given, perhaps even fighting against it or somehow cutting it short. You're like a car without a key, a bird who doesn't know it can fly, a superhero who hasn't discovered his special abilities. (laughs) How sad it is when we believers neglect the power that Jesus has earned for us. How sad it is when we return to moral mediocrity, lack of self-control, giving up rather than persevering, and when we choose to live in ungodliness rather than godliness. But on the other hand, how glorious it is when fallen, messed up people allow Jesus to develop them until they are living in a way that actually glorifies a holy God. And yes, that is possible, even for you. Let's talk about this word, godliness. Discuss what is meant by it in this context. I must tell you that through my study of this word, I found that my understanding of it had been a bit off. I I think a couple weeks ago I even said that godliness is the same or synonymous as righteousness. There are some places in Scripture where that is true, but not in this passage. This word in the original Greek used by the Apostle Peter is eusebia. It means appropriate beliefs and devout practice of obligations relating to supernatural persons and powers, religion, piety. Now, if you're like me, that definition isn't exactly what you had in mind when you heard the word godliness. But something similar is what I've found in every source with words like reverence and worshipfulness standing out. 
See, before drilling down into this, had someone asked me to define godliness, I would have said to be like God. But I found out that's not the sum total of what this word means in the original Greek. The word actually means to be pleasing to God in our religious activity, which is sometimes also known as piety. Godliness is about living in light of the sacred presence of God. This is actually about being, are you ready for this? This is about being religious to the core. But religion is bad, right? Wrong. Right religion is good. Wrong religion is bad. I found out that godliness has a lot to do with our religious practice, or as one translation words it, our devotion to God. This may mean that when someone in the world refers to you as a very religious person, you are actually on the right track with regard to godliness. Isn't it interesting that the very thing the world doesn't like is for us to be godly? Now, my point is not that the righteous behavior we typically think of as godliness is unimportant, but that we've already covered that concept with other words in this passage, and that this word actually means more. To put it plainly, the word eusebia, translated as godliness, means to practice your religion in a way that is pleasing to God. So, how does everything I just took the time to explain matter for your life? in our discussion today. Well, it matters because if we're going to apply all diligence to developing these five Christ-like character traits, as many of us have agreed to do, then we need to understand completely what it is that we are working toward. If we're going to hit the target, the target needs to be clearly defined. The fourth virtue we are discussing called godliness in our text is about being a person whose religious practice is pleasing to God. Now, what is religious practice? Is that just what you do when you come to church? No, no, that would be bad religion if it's only a church. In fact, let me just settle something once and for all. This service is not the church. This particular meeting location or, or one that, that might get built someday is not the church. We're not going to build a church someday. We may well build a church building, but Christ is already building His church and you are it. The church and even this specific local church is you. Folks, only about 1 64th of your religious practice takes place in the church building or place where we gather. That's right, just over 1% of your religion is practiced, quote, at church. That's assuming you spend two hours at church per week. I did the math. Jesus said true religion is caring for widows. James, I'm sorry, said true religion is caring for widows and orphans. True religion that's pure and undefiled. Caring for widows and orphans, helping people in need. Paul mostly demonstrated his religion by spreading the gospel and planting churches. Jesus said our primary task is to be making disciples. And he said he would be with us. Not that we would need to travel to any temple to find him. But that he would join us as we go. To all nations and all people. 
New Testament religion means you are the temple. So God goes with you everywhere you go. Your religion is your life, or it should be. There should be no distinction, none at all. Not a, not a shred of difference when you walk in here. Your religion is your life. And if it is your life and it truly honors God, well then, you are godly. So what does this tell us about godliness as we should now understand it? That being religious practice or piety that honors or reveres God. Godliness means your life pleases God. That's what it means to have the virtue called Eusebia, godliness, to live your life consistently for God and with God in mind, that reverence for God, even in a sacred way, a sacred way, to the point somebody would say you're religious because you're just always thinking, talking about God. He just permeates everything that you do. A way that's worshipful with reverence toward a holy God. Another way to say this takes us back to the beginning. That godliness means living every moment to bring glory to God. This is godliness, as it should be understood from our text. Now that we know what we're striving for, let's talk about how we should go about it. There are at least three biblical guidelines that can help us as we apply all diligence toward developing the Christ-like character trait of godliness. The first guideline is this. Know who, if you're writing that out, put a capital W, know who grants the power for godliness. Every Sunday in this series, I have spent time reminding you where the power comes from. The power comes through your relationship with God in Christ, through your knowledge of Him, through knowing Him. That's everywhere in this text. With godliness, it's even more clear. Look back again to verse 3. Peter writes, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to what? To life and godliness. Same word, eusebia, godliness. And whose power has granted to us what we need in order to have this virtue? Verse 2 has the answer, the Lord Jesus. It is specifically the divine power of Jesus that allows us to be godly. Let's look at one more definition for godliness based again on the original language. Baker puts it this way, the reverent awareness of God's sovereignty over every aspect of life and the attendant determination to honor Him in all one's conduct. Let's leave that up on the screen for a minute and think about how the second part of the definition depends on the first part. Think about this. What causes a person to develop an attendant determination to honor God. Are we born with this determination? Do people naturally live their lives with a determination to honor God in all their conduct? No. Who lives like this? Only those who have the first part, a reverent awareness of His sovereignty. That is to say, those who really know Him, who spend a lot of time getting to know Him by walking with Him. Those who know he's there. I say again, the first guideline to help you develop godliness is to know who offers the power to be godly. You have to know him. 
You have to walk with him. You have to be with him. Now, there are several ways that we can come to know God better. That's the primary purpose of the Bible, of course. But this must go deeper than just looking up facts about God in his book. The Bible is the revelation of God to the world. The knowledge of God that comes through fervent Bible study is not the same as the knowledge of physics that can come through a physics textbook. There is something much more powerful to the Word of God. Yes, even a mystical component, a spiritual quality. Dare I say there is something magical about the Word of God in that. I take it this relates to a conversation that happened, or I bet, I get it. Holy Spirit works in all our lives at the same time, same Holy Spirit. There's something magical about the Word of God, something magical. There's, there's an unnatural power in it, not found in any other book. How so? Well, the Bible is God's primary tool for revealing Himself, and again, not just facts, but his very person. The living word can come into your life through the pages of his written word until you are no longer simply reading about him, but you are actually experiencing him. Happens to me all the time. Someone recently said to me, and I get it, I get it, but he said a bit sarcastically, my wife tells me that the problem is I just need to read my Bible more. And I wanted to say, your wife is right. And the reason is not because of information, you see, but because of inspiration. Not because of information, but because of inspiration. Because God's Word is infused with Him. And we can learn to interact with God as we interact with His Word. When we interact with God, we come to know Him better. See, folks, with this point, I'm not mostly saying you need to know the fact that the power to become godly comes from God. I'm not just saying you need to be aware that He is the source. I'm saying you need to know Him. You need to know the who of godliness. You need to know God. And the more you know Him, the more power you will find available as you seek to develop this virtue. The Bible is our best and most reliable source for coming to know God, but there are other ways that He reveals Himself as well. We can see God in creation, can't we? We can learn much about who He is. And I'd go so far as to say that God likes to meet with us in nature. It's not just that we find out more facts about God by understanding facts about nature, but indeed that we can experience God through that which He has made. Standing on a beach somewhere, watching the waves roll in, or sitting quietly deep within a forest, gazing up at a clear night sky, speechlessly in awe of the one who formed countless solar systems. These are the moments, the moments when we can know God. If you want to become a godly person, you need to know the who of godliness. We live in desperate times. Most people don't really know our personal God, and many of them don't want to know Him. Culture tells us to be anything but godly, and that we need everything but God. 
However, that really should not surprise us. The Bible warns that in the last days there will be very difficult times, for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and have no interest in what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act as if they are religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. You can chalk that up as one more biblical prophecy fulfilled. We see it all the time. Notice what I've underlined. They will consider nothing sacred, nothing pious, nothing godly. And also they will act as if they are religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Remember I said that the heart of godliness actually has to do with religious practice. Religious practice that is pleasing to God. That's what godliness actually is. And hasn't it become so true that many ungodly people still want to act like they are religious, or we might say spiritual. But what do they do? They reject the only one who could really give them spiritual power, which is the power to change spiritually. They refuse to come to know God through Christ. Must be some other way. They might try a lot of other things, but they will not seek out the Lord or respond to Him so that he can define and empower their religion. Instead, they guess. They come up with stuff based on whatever is the popular philosophy of the day, and they actually wind up telling God how they think religion should be. The power to be godly is a person, but many reject him, either actively or passively. The power that can make us godly is Jesus. He is our bridge to a holy God, the only bridge. He's the only way we can know the who of godliness. It's only through our ever-growing, ever-developing relationship with God through Jesus Christ, His Son, that we have any hope for godliness. You need to know Jesus better if you want to be godly. Don't reject or ignore the only power that can help you achieve this virtue. The second guideline to becoming godly is simply this. Be motivated by the benefits of godliness. Be motivated by the benefits of godliness. Maybe that sounds self-centered or petty. Maybe we shouldn't need any extra motivation to be godly. Maybe as believers, we should automatically desire to reflect God's character in all that we are every moment of every day. But the truth is that we often could use a little incentive to practice godliness. The truth is that before most of us will passionately pursue something, we usually need to see the personal point. We'll do better if we can see what we're going to get from it, frankly. And thankfully, God did not leave us to wonder if there are any benefits to godliness. The Bible says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Wow, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It's the same way that an athlete disciplines himself or herself with a regimen of exercise. I wonder how many of us are really doing that. 
And Paul could have stopped right there with that command in verse 7, but he didn't. He goes on to talk about benefits. He says physical fitness has its benefits, but they don't compare to the benefits of godliness because the payback for godliness will be received both in this present life and also in the life to come. The Bible is full of verses that tell us the benefits of godliness, so let's look at a few of them. And we'll start with those benefits that have to do with this life. That is temporal benefits. First benefit, God offers rescue from temptation to godly people. Later in the same book, Peter writes, the Lord knows how to rescue who? The godly from temptation. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. There are a couple things we need to notice from this verse. First of all, it doesn't say godly people won't face temptation. Scripture tells us even Jesus faced temptation, yet did not sin. This verse says that when godly people face temptation, and they will, they can expect God to throw out a life preserver. This and several other passages of Scripture tell us that God will make a rescue attempt every time a godly person is tempted. Whether or not you ignore his rescue effort is another issue. I think this is a pretty big benefit myself because lest we forget, when Satan tempts us, it is not because he wants something good for us. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he does. When you give in to temptation, the thing the devil wants you to do, it may feel good for a moment, but it is going to absolutely suck the life out of you in the end. I like to keep you awake every now and then. Give in to temptation repeatedly. And eventually, you'll be dead. He wants to kill. It's a major benefit that God offers rescue from temptation. We don't really recognize what we can be rescued from. But he offers it to who? The godly. What about those who are not godly? What can they expect? They cannot expect to be rescued from temptation. Rather, they'll find themselves in cycles of punishment, it says. Punishment mostly of their own making, by the way, right up until the day of judgment. I know this isn't popular, but it's exactly what the Bible says. God does not pull any punches here. Godly people can expect a rescue attempt when temptation comes calling. Ungodly people can expect no, th- no such thing. Maybe we should pursue godliness with all diligence. A second temporal benefit of godliness is this. God listens to and answers the prayers of the godly. Specifically of the godly. Several verses, but here's one. John 9, 31 says, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. The God of the universe listens to the prayers of godly people. He listens. He hears. Who does he hear again? Godly people. See, this verse also says God does not listen to sinners, doesn't it? Now, are we talking about people who are saved and people who are not saved here? Or are we talking about people who are living godly lives or not living godly lives? Well, we know that God generally does not listen to the prayers of people who are still unforgiven in their sin, who haven't come to Christ But also as it comes to how actively God listens to believers, I would also say it matters how you're living. 
I think it is true that regardless of whether you are saved by faith in Christ or not, when your life is defined more by sin than by godliness, God stops listening at that point. When you've strayed far enough, or obviously if you never came to Christ in the first place, then the only prayer God hears from you is a prayer of repentance. And God longs to hear that prayer. But that's about, about all that's going to get through. And I'm not making this up. There are many verses of Scripture telling us that God does not listen to the prayers of those who are living in a state of rebellion to His commands. Old Testament, New Testament. And that includes even some who are supposed to be saved. Believing husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. Who wrote that? Peter did. And that's just one example. Speaking to the people of God, the psalmist wrote, Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies. They will receive the Lord's blessing and have right standing with God their Savior. They alone may enter God's presence and worship the God of Israel. It was Jesus who said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But the converse must also be true, that those who walk in impurity won't be able to see God as well or at all, through the haze of sin. There is a point of rebellion at which God will no longer hear you and He will not answer you, even for believers. I continually see this truth repeated in my own study of Scripture. We know that God disciplines those, those whom He loves. Perhaps this is one of the ways He does so. It reminds me of my wife sometimes. She doesn't like to be taken for granted. Anybody else? How does she tell me? Sometimes it's a little less communication. <laughs> Dong. We were talking about benefits. And this benefit of godliness is that even on this temporal earth, the God of heaven listens to your prayers and he answers them, particularly when you are walking in godliness. Maybe God doesn't always answer in the way you had envisioned or in the time frame you had hoped for, but he will hear and he will answer. That's a pretty huge benefit granted through godliness. Again, John 9, 31 says, God listens to the godly person who does his will. We can take that verse at face value. Now, let's take a time out. Hear this. Godliness is not perfection. Peter, who wrote this text that we've been studying, was not perfect. Obviously, I am far from perfect, as you know. I confess sin to God fairly often. And see, that's what you do when you're making every effort to live a godly life. You notice when you fail, and you stop, and you take it to the cross. Because those applying all diligence to the development of godliness are very aware when it is lost. Repentance can bring restoration in an instant because of Jesus. God knows that we're not going to be perfect in this life. So what he wants is soft hearts always ready to return to him. He is the God of restoration. The cross is enough but for forgiveness and for empowerment. 
we must notice when it's time to turn. And so, as with all of these virtues, godliness is more about consistent effort to surrender than it is about perfect results. Now, as I mentioned, not only does godliness bring current benefits like answered prayer and rescue from temptation, but godliness also stores up for us benefits in the next life as well. Let's talk briefly about the eternal benefits of godliness. Later in the same letter, Peter writes, since everything around us is going to melt away, what a great way to start a sentence, huh? Wake up. (laughs) Since everything around us is going to melt away, what holy, godly lives you should be living. You should look forward to that day and hurry it along. Some of the benefits of godliness won't come until heaven. That's one thing that's there in that verse. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But what does a benefit look like in a place that is already paradise? <laughs> I have no idea. But I figure it's got to be good. It's got to be good. If it's a benefit and a reward in paradise, I mean, that's got to be really special. In such places as Matthew chapters 5 and 6, Jesus himself promised that there will be rewards in heaven. And he taught that rewards there will be based on behavior here. As the Apostle Paul put it, if any man's work, which he has built on Christ's foundation, remains, he will receive a reward. Living a godly life here will earn heavenly rewards there. And the great thing about rewards in heaven is that they last forever. I love that scene in Chariots of Fire. I need to see how old I am. How many of you have seen Chariots of Fire? At least, I hope, several of you? Good, quite a few. It's a great movie. It's a classic based on the true story of Christian Olympian Eric Little. I won't recount the whole scene, but Eric is asked by a committee of his superiors to make a choice that he feels would be ungodly. This choice is required of him if he is to run his best race, the one he's expected to win. At great cost to himself, he refuses. His hopes and dreams appear to be dashed on the altar of a godly, yes, even pious, thought of as a super hyper-religious choice, which few would understand. He simply won't run on what he considers to be the Sabbath. They set his race for Sunday, he says no personal rule that he had in his life and one of the ways that he honored God. How religious of him, right? I mean, come on, it's just one Sunday. And it's the Olympics, for crying out loud. The committee can, uh, uh, goes and it appeals to all of, tries to you know, manipulate him in every way they can. They appeal to his patriotism. But he explains that his allegiance is first and foremost to heaven. His stance makes the headlines. And we're still talking about it today. This is a great example of godliness. In fact, if you forget all the definitions that I've given, just remember Eric Little's choice, if you want to understand godliness. The flying Scotsman, as he was known, knew that if he were to choose what a less godly man would have chosen, he would be sacrificing so much more than one potential gold medal. And to be clear, my point is not whether it would have been wrong for him to run on that day or whether it would be wrong for any person ever anywhere. That's not the point. But that in order to make such a godly choice, 
Eric Little must have been keeping the eternal benefits in mind, don't you think? To sacrifice a gold medal on this earth, what else could have motivated him to do that? Remembering those benefits, those eternal benefits, can help you make godly choices too. What are those heavenly benefits <laughs> specifically? I don't know. But whatever they are, they are eternal. <laughs> I'd say even the smallest benefit that lasts forever is a fairly strong motivation. Now, the third biblical guideline to be godly is this. Choose to actively pursue godliness. Maybe that doesn't sound very profound, but it's really the bottom line. Developing godliness in your life will require intentionality. You have to choose to be godly, and you have to keep making godly choices if you're going to develop godliness. You just won't catch up to this virtue without a pursuit. One might even say that part of being godly is pursuing godliness. Now, where do I get this? Well, besides what we keep coming to and covering in our main text about pursuing these virtues with all diligence or making every effort, also in 2 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, this is addressed specifically. Paul famously writes that godliness with contentment is great gain. And then he goes on to say that we ought to pursue godliness. Paul told Timothy to pursue godliness. You can look that up later. The point is that when you pursue something, that's pretty intentional. I mean, you are intensely focused when you are in pursuit. Think about when you were hoping to be married to the love of your life. You might not have admitted, admitted it, but you were in pursuit. And not, most, not much else mattered during that time, right? I, I'm not sure my grades were as good the semester when I met Christy. Pretty sure they went down a notch or two. Whether it's a lion stalking a gazelle or a policeman chasing after a criminal, there's nothing automatic or passive about a pursuit. It's full on. You're never going to catch up if you don't give it everything you've got. Got to be all in, determined. That's just how the Bible says we should be about godliness, to pursue it. Let's look back at Baker's definition one more time. Not these Bakers, another guy. You said it this way, the reverent awareness of God's sovereignty over every aspect of life and the, here it is, attendant determination to honor him with all one's conduct. The attendant determination to honor God in all one's conduct. Don't miss the word determination. Applying all diligence to becoming a godly person means that I am determined to weigh every single choice on the basis of whether or not it will honor God. If it honors God, I do it. If it dishonors God, I don't do it. Simple to understand, challenging to do. But there's another reason that active pursuit and intentionality are required for godliness. It's because you'll never hear someone say, that man is a little bit godly. No one ever says, he's kind of a godly man. No one says, she's godly sometimes. It just seems like godliness is pretty much all or nothing, doesn't it? Again, this is not perfection, but it is a consistent attitude, an attendant determination, a constantly reverent awareness, a relentless pursuit. Ask yourself, am I godly? Am I godly? 
If not, ask yourself, am I pursuing godliness? I would bet the answer to those two questions is the same. Remember, I warned you that this would be a challenging season. (laughs) You know what I think? Christianity is either challenging or it's counterfeit. If our Christianity is like a hobby we can work on in our spare time, ours is not the Christianity that changed the world, not the Christianity of Christ. And yet also remember this, when you conscientiously choose to pursue the challenges of true Christianity by faith in Christ, to diligently pursue virtues like godliness, know this, Christ himself will be there to help you succeed. The more you know God, the more godly you can become. The more godly you become, the more you can know God. Sometimes when talking about salvation and spiritual growth, people say, oh, it's all God. It's all God. I probably said that myself. But you know what? It's not literally true. Our spiritual progress progress isn't really all God because even as he chose to save us and sanctify us, he also chose to let our choices matter. Now, the power is all his. The ability to change is all his. The miracle is his. It's his work. But if it's all God, then what am I even doing here? What is the point of my existence or my effort? Is it all dependent upon God? Yes, absolutely. Can any of these good things happen in my life without God? Absolutely not. But there's a little something called agency or choice that God gave us. And that means you and I can learn to walk with him in the cool of the day, or we can keep going back to the forbidden fruit. God has decided that your choices will matter. Your decisions matter. Your effort matters. Your diligence matters. What are you pursuing? Is it godliness? Again, someone's thinking, I just don't know if I can be a godly person. I mean, isn't that like for pastors or really special pastors? Or maybe it's not even, maybe it's for missionaries. I mean, only somebody besides me. And again, I will remind you that if you know Jesus, you can be godly. Will you believe this promise of Scripture? Remember the verse in our text where it says, in your faith supply all of these things. You have to believe that godliness is possible in Christ. You have to believe He wants to do all these things in you. And remember verse 3, which says so clearly that He has already given you everything you need to be what? Godly. Will you accept the challenge to work together with God as he seeks to make you into the person he wants you to be. The challenge is clear. The choice is yours. But what about those here who maybe have never become a believer in the first place? You can't become a better believer if you aren't a believer yet. What does it mean to become a believer? It means you repent of your sinful self and put your trust in Jesus Christ to save you from all of it. Part of that trust in Jesus means that you are accepting that he is going to start changing you through your faith in him from the inside out. The question is this, is anyone ready to surrender 
to give in to God and believe Christ is enough? Is anyone ready to start a journey toward becoming a godly person through faith in Jesus Christ? I hope so. Would you pray with me? God, for that person who may be here or even listening online, um, who has gotten to this point of being right on the edge, ready to cross the line of faith, Lord, let that spark happen as your spirit draws. I pray someone in this moment responds with a yes. I'm in. I need Jesus. I need forgiveness. I need help. I surrender to Jesus Christ today. Lord, thank you for not leaving us as we were, but coming to die on a cross and rising again so that we could have victory, both in our lives, as we sang earlier, and also at the end, ultimate victory. Help all of us, whether it's a person who just today began this walk through this moment of faith in Christ, or some of us who've been trying to walk it out for 30 years, we can all grow. I don't believe in false humility. There's probably someone here who is living a godly life, who is walking in godliness. But for many of us, there's some steps we need to take. So help us to surrender today. I pray that today a real decision would be made, that there would be a new pursuit in our life, the pursuit of godliness. To be constantly, reverently aware of your presence and walking where religion is not something we do on Sundays every now and then or holidays or something, but it's our life. Our life is about you, God. Every moment, that's when we'll be godly. Change our hearts, change our lives. In the power of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.